podcast, cutting edge conversations with the Quant community. Hello, everybody. Welcome to a new Quantcast, Risto.net's podcast on quant finance. Mauro Cesar here speaking. And for this Quantcast, I'm speaking to Matthias Arnsdorf, Global Head of Quant Research on Counterparty Credit Risk at JP Morgan. Hi, Matthias. Great to have you here. Hi, Mauro. Thanks very much for the invitation. Very pleased to be able to talk about uh, KVA today. Indeed. So the topic we are discussing is KVA, and um, and it is the capital valuation adjustment, one of the most recent valuation adjustments to be introduced. KVA measures the cost of regulatory capital a bank needs to hold during the life of trades. Matthias, you have been working on an alternative perspective on KVA and consequently an adapted uh, way to calculate it. So Ristonet has published your findings and the paper is uh, is online, it's titled KVA as a transfer of wealth. Uh, it's also in print in the December issue of Risk. Um, before we go into the description of this work, could you give us a quick recap of what is KVA, how it works and how it is regulated? Uh, yeah, sure, absolutely. So, uh, so first of all, yes, um, KVA is something I've been working on for, for a number of years. It's a particular interest of mine, and, and this work is presents some of the conclusions uh, regarding, uh, regarding that research. So uh, as you said already initially, KVA, of course, stands for Capital Valuation Adjustment. It's viewed as part of the so-called XVA family. Those are valuation adjustments that we make for uh, derivatives trades that go over and above the sort of typical uh, base value that you would calculate. The, the most famous ones are, of course, the, the CVA, the Counterparty Valuation Adjustment, and the FVA, the Funding Valuation Adjustment. Um, so maybe just a few words of where the KVA comes from and what the sort of standard motivation for that is. Uh, so first of all, as I said, we're, we're talking about derivatives trade, so we're thinking about an investment bank dealing in derivatives. Uh, as we know, in, in recent years, capital requirements, regulatory capital requirements, have become very important, very much a, a topic of focus. And in particular here, we're concerned about capital requirements associated to particular derivative trades. So the idea is that some trades will have much higher capital requirements than, than others. Uh, capital requirement really means that if you engage in certain activity, there's a certain minimum level of capital that the, uh, the regulators will require you to have against your, your full portfolio. So if you engage in a marginal derivatives transaction, that overall capital requirement will change. It, it typically will go up, and that's, that's the capital requirement associated to a trade. So the capital requirements have become larger in general, so it's become much more of an issue for, for banks, and hence there's a lot of focus on this. And... <clears throat> In particular, so from going from the other end, we know that shareholders require a return on any uh, equity investment in in a firm. This is the return on equity, or <clears throat> or the ROE for short. So it's very tempting to think of this return. Say you can think of this as, as a dividend. Say to think of this return as just a cash flow that's due to the shareholder. So and you can think of this as a cash cash flow associated to the derivatives trade itself, just another cash flow, uh, just as the, the other cash flows that you have uh, 
due to the payoff of the derivative. Uh, so that naturally leads to the next step then, okay, if I have this extra return that I have to um, uh, that I have to make associated to a derivative trade, then I should just price that in along with all the other flows associated trades. And that will lead you to making an adjustment to your basic value, valuation adjustment that is referred to as the, the KVA or, or capital valuation adjustment. Um, so the next step, what, what is this KVA? What does it look like? Well, if typically we make another assumption, which is that the, the return on equity is, is a global constant, and in particular that it stays the same if I add a new marginal trade or the equity is, is increased for the total portfolio. In, in that case, under that assumption, it's, it's quite easy to show that the, the KVA is just going to be proportional to the ROE, the fixed um, quantity, as well as the capital requirement associated to trade. And that's sort of the typical KVA expression that you will uh, see in the literature. Um, I refer to that as a so-called hurdle rate KVA. That's because this is the amount that you will need to charge on the trade to make sure that the trade returns a certain amount, and that amount is given by that uh, ROE assumption that you that you put in. And what is the issue that you see uh, connected to the uh, KVA being proportional to ROE? Yes, so uh, this really leads to the um, to the heart of the. Um, the paper we're discussing here. So the hurdle rate KVA, it does, it does provide a charge, and that charge will ensure that you make a certain amount of uh, return on that trade. The question is really, is that an economic return? Is that return justified, or is it just something that you would like to have? Is it, is it actually fundamentally part of the theoretical value of the trade? And why is that a question? Well, there's two fundamental Problems that are uh, that come up with the with the sort of the standard story that I just just presented. Um, so the first one is sort of the basic: why is there a non-trivial uh, return on equity at all? Uh, this might seem an odd question because we're so familiar with uh, firms reporting their return on equities. We know you know bank will have typically 15% ROE. Um, however, right? I mean for a hedge derivatives portfolio, and let's assume that investment bank is nothing but a big portfolio of derivatives and hedges, we know that that should be riskless. And that is, in fact, sort of what we learn on day one in derivatives pricing. It's, it's fundamentally at the heart of uh, the Black-Scholes derivation, that once we hedge a derivative, there's no more risk. If there's no risk, there should be no shareholder return. And if there's no shareholder return, there should be no uh, no KVA associated to this. Um, this is addressed in a different paper, so a different paper I put out. Um, so this is not the problem we're discussing here. And I mean, just just to give the the brief summary, yeah, yeah. clearly and the solution is that sorry. that paper is um, is referenced in uh, the the one we just published, so a reader can actually go and find it. That's right. And as, as a listener can imagine, the solution is really that obviously in practice, the portfolio is not, not riskless or risk-free. There's many reasons why it shouldn't be. And in particular, that can lead to an ROE very naturally. Uh, here we look at a second associated problem. And that's even if we assume for now that there is a non-trivial ROE, 
uh, there's the second question. Can we assume that our RE stays constant? And in particular, uh, does it stay constant as we add extra equity um, to the um, to the firm as a whole? Uh, so, so why is that a question? Well, fundamentally, we know that the ROE depends on the on the equity level uh, that the firm holds, or equivalently, the the leverage of the firm. And I think the simplest way to see this is sort of in a thought experiment, right? I mean, you assume you have a a um, an investment bank, it has an ROE of 15%, and let's say its capital levels are 10% of the RWA. Let's say that's the, the regulatory minimum imposed. So now imagine over the weekend, regulators, they sit in a room, they have a change of heart, and they think, well, we want the financial system to be much safer. We're now going to ask all firms to hold 20% of their RWA in, in capital. So what happens the next day? The banks will increase their equity levels. Will the shareholders still expect 15% return? No, clearly not. Right? The, the firm is become much safer now. And roughly the shareholders will expect half of the already. They'll expect 7.5% uh, on the equity uh, that the firm holds. But fundamentally, again, that's because as you increase the equity, the risk of the firm goes down and the ROE should be associated with that risk and hence go down as well. Uh, so th this is uh, this is part of a sort of more general formal theorem. Listeners familiar with corporate finance, they, they will know this goes by the name of the Modigliani-Miller theorem, which is uh, very famous, and that says that the in general, that the valuation should be invariant under changes in leverage. That's the valuation of the firm as a whole. An increase in capital is nothing but a change in the leverage of the firm. So this suggests that the um, that increases in equity capital due to regulatory requirements associated with trade, say, also shouldn't really impact valuation. And this again suggests that there should be no uh, KBA. So the question really that we're addressing here in this paper is, can we make sense of a KBA associated with capital requirements? or much more generally, just to changes in capital levels or leverage. Um, in other words, can we quantify the a cost to shareholders due to changes in, in equity levels? Uh, and we want to do this by not making any assumptions, any external assumptions about what, what a return on equity should be. We want this to really emerge out of the theory itself. We want to derive what is the real economic shareholder cost associated to capital changes in light of the sort of problems I've tried to address, sort of the theoretical uh, questions around the linkage between the ROE and the equity levels itself. Yeah, and, and how are you addressing it? So why are you proposing with your model? So to, to address this problem, we really, uh, we first need to make a, a slight detour and, and we need to talk about sort of value and, and different concepts of, of valuation. Uh, this has emerged to be quite important in understanding valuation adjustments. And in particular, we need to introduce the concept of shareholder valuation or, or the so-called shareholder indifference price, which is how it's often referred to in, in the literature. And, and this is nothing but the, the price for trade or the charge that's required so that the shareholder won't lose out. So that means that the shareholder is indifferent to entering the trade or not entering the trade. 
And the point is really that this is different, this value can be different to the so-called firm valuation or total valuation um, that we would calculate for a trade. And, and this is fundamentally because there can be so-called uh, transfer of wealth between the shareholders and, and the creditors. Um, and to understand this, we need to bear in mind that the, sort of the, the total value of an asset or firm as a whole is shared between the shareholder and the, the creditor of that firm. And it can happen that when engaging in certain transact- transactions, there's a, there's a shift of the, of the overall wealth between shareholders and, and creditors, and this can mean that shareholders can lose out. Um, so, so that's quite abstract, but the, sort of the main famous example is the FEA, which, is, which brought this to sort of everyone's attention. And as people are probably aware, there's sort of, there has been quite an active controversy uh, debate in the literature around the, the merits of FEA and the theoretical justification, and it really hinges on this concept of valuation. Uh, and in particular, the FEA itself is is an example of where we have this um, shareholder uh, valuation, which is different from the, the fundamental value. Um, so the question here is, does, is KBA in a way similar? And the answer is yes. So KBA is uh, KBA2 that we discuss here is of the same type. So even though, as, as we've, I've tried to earlier we have this sort of global theorem that total value remains unchanged uh, while we change capital levels or leverage that doesn't mean that the shareholder wealth itself uh, remains unchanged and again this is because of this transfer of wealth um, and this means that there can be a shareholder indifference price which is different to the uh, to the base valuation and that difference is um, is the KVA or the KVA2 that we try to motivate in this paper. And maybe just the, the simplest way to, to define KVA2 or, or view what this is, imagine you have two identical trades, exactly the same payoffs, exactly the same cash flows, but for one of those, you have an associated capital requirement, which means if you engage in that trade, you're going to have to increase capital by an amount K. If you engage in the other trade, you don't. You have no capital requirement. KVA2 gives you the difference between the value of those two trades. I see, I see. Um, Some listeners will um, be familiar with a couple of approaches that have been in the literature, Uh, one by uh, Matt Kjaer and the other one uh, by Leif Andersen. In what way your approach differs and in what way it is uh, analogous to those? Yes, that's right. So KBA is obviously has been discussed quite actively in the literature. However, it is, is one of the most recent valuation adjustments. So, um, I mean, even though it's been around for for a few years, it's still relatively fresh. Um, and there are different approaches to KBA have been have been proposed in the literature. I mean, just broadly, the difference between KBA two and, and most other KVA proposals, and I'll get onto the Anderson here in a minute. Is the is the effective rate the return uh, that that is assumed in the in the KVA calculation? So typical approaches for KVA will be proportional to uh, a return on equity, 
and how that return on equity is defined can differ. Um, in some cases, it's just assumed to be a fixed uh, parameter a priori. In some cases, it's derived, but uh, typically there will be a, a return on equity sitting in your KVA expression. In RKVA2, um, we have an expression that is proportional to the capital requirement, but it's not proportional to any return on equity. Or put the other way, the effective rate that um, goes into our KVA expression is the default rate of the firm or a junior funding rate of the firm. Um, so that's the fundamental difference between KVA2 and most other KVA approaches. And I mean, this may seem surprising at first. Why is it called KVA if it has nothing to do with ROE? I mean, the, the fundamental reason is is the one I gave earlier, the fact that capital levels and return on equity are fundamentally linked. This is first-order effect we can't ignore, so increasing capital levels will reduce um, the ROE. And the this transfer of wealth, really, that occurs is not related to the risk of the asset itself. And it's also not related to the ROE. It's really down to um, the uh, the risk that an investor has when he puts money into a firm, and that risk is the default rate of the firm. Um, the, um, our, our, our approach so fundamentally looks at the um, what the value of the shareholder is. We do this in a balance sheet approach. And the first paper that's sort of laid out very nicely, an example of a simple balance sheet in order to study valuation adjustments is, is by Anderson Duffy and Swan, who wrote, uh, my view, quite an important paper of funding value adjustments, where they where they introduced a balance sheet and used that to study SEA. Uh, Matkier, he, he extended that approach to explicitly look at KVA as well, in addition to uh, other XVAs. And our approach is fundamentally the same, since we use a balance sheet framework. In fact, our, our, uh, we use a very special case. We use the, the Merton model, because that's very simple and intuitive. We can view that as a special case. It's a more general balance sheet model introduced in the literature. Um, it's it's very nice because people know it and and it works quite well in in this situation. Um, the Kieri specifically looks at KVA. He also defines KVA as a shareholder indifference price and makes that distinction very clearly. Um, however, again, we differ in the final form of the, the KVA expression. So our KVA is not proportional to an ROE. It's it's proportional to a funding rate of the firm. And that's fundamentally due to different approaches um, taken in satisfying the, the capital, requir capital requirement. So in our approach, we, we make sure that the capital requirement is met exactly. Uh, that means we, we get to the most efficient way of satisfying the capital requirement, which leads to the most efficient KVA rate. So I think an important point to note and we'll get onto that later, I think, also is that the the fact that KVA2 is proportional to the funding rate means KVA2 is much smaller than typical KVA because the funding rate is much smaller than, than the typical ROE, say 1% versus 
Yeah, that is actually a significant point. So um, actually, that leads me to to the next question. So given the difference is so massive, do you expect do you expect banks to be uh, interested in this formulation of KVA, your KVA2, uh, while at the same time regulators might be a bit more prudent about it? So I think there's, uh, there's a very good question. There's quite a few parts to this. Um, so first of all, uh, fundamentally, KDA2 is meant to capture um, the real economic cost of a, a change in, in capital levels or, or change in, in leverage. Um, this can be for a number of reasons. It, it, it doesn't have to be only for capital requirements associated to new trade activity. I mean, it could also be because capital requirements overall are changed, right, without changing the portfolio at all. In fact, that's a much cleaner way to, to view this. Um, and there's other reasons why firms might increase capital levels. Another important one is the so-called uh, charge for systemically important banks, uh, GSIP levels. Uh, those all may lead to, to changing your capital levels. And it, that change in leverage has a cost associated, and that's what we tend to uh, calculate in KBA2. Um, however, uh, as you mentioned, right, the the rate that goes into KBA2 is, is the funding rate. It's around 1%, much lower than an ROE. So a KBA2 adjustment, although it is real, and this is a real shareholder cost, it's quite small. And also, uh, it can be reduced further because there is an offset to the KBA2 because any equity invested in the firm can be used for under other funding. This is well known in, in sort of study of KVA. And depending on what funding instruments you have at your disposal, if, if you can fund very junior, if you can offset junior funding requirements, then you can uh, reduce your KVA2 substantially. Uh, so KVA2 is quite small. So in that sense, that's attractive uh, for a firm in terms of charging. And, you would have to charge less to recoup any, any losses associated to it. However, there is a there's sort of an overall question of, of transparency and shareholder transparency. But at, at the top level, shareholders may may not exactly see what's happening with with capital levels increasing. They may not follow the whole chain of oh, I see you've done derivatives trade. Your your capital has increased. I'm gonna you know hence assume the firm is safer and and reduce my required equity. So, in the, the whole chain is, is quite complex. So uh, that's sort of the challenge for a firm to manage if it still wants to meet certain external uh, target requirements. Um, having said that, I mean, KDA2 is not at this point, as far as I know at least, sort of universally accepted charge, certainly not in the sense of, you know, accounting adjustments. So it is still early days, much earlier than, than say, SEA. And so also from a regulatory point of view, uh, in terms of valuation, I don't think that is something that has been uh, very actively discussed uh, so far. But do you expect that in perspective to potentially replace the standard KVA calculation? Would there be appetite so, uh, for it? I, I think, again, right, I think, first of all, 
uh, it's early days in terms of KVA, so different firms will be doing very different things uh, in, in terms of KVA charging. I think the point of this uh, paper really is it allows firms to take another another view and really think about mm-hmm. you know what are we doing, what are we trying to achieve if we do, if we should charge to KVA. Um, you know, what is the real cost associated changing capital level? And again, this could be not just due to trade activity, right? Uh, another very good example, the, the standard uh, standard capital requirements for, for credit is changing, uh, as we all know. Um, so we're moving from the constant exposure method to the so-called SACCR in, in sometime in 22. Uh, so that will change your capital levels. Right? So the question is, does that, you know, is there a cost associated with that? Do, do I need to do anything? Right? And KVA2 gives you a framework on how to how to think about that. So what banks then will choose to charge will depend on a lot of other factors as well. But I think this at least will give them sort of an economic framework to think about you know, what is my actual fundamental economic uh, loss associated to any changes in leverage. So it would be a, the bank internal decision to uh, start calculating or observing KVA this way, but at the same time there's a regulatory approval needed to uh, extend this concept to a wider use. So first of all, clearly what banks charge clients, that's completely internal decision, clearly. Um, I think then... The second step is what do you do about your accounting framework, right? So we know that over the years, FEA has been big discussion and most firms have adopted FEA in, in their accounts, uh, going after, coming after CDA, which again predates this, but also had similar sort of discussions. Um, so the question of should it be accounted or not, again, that has a lot of um, a lot of other ramifications, but typically that that wouldn't be a regulatory question. Right? This is a question between your accountants, your auditors, and those various constraints that you have in in how you represent your your P and L on your balance sheet. Um, so that's one set of questions. But then regulators typically will be very interested in what you do with your capital calculations, your internal capital calculations, so this is your, your CET1 uh, capital, so the calculation of how much capital the firm holds, not the capital requirements, right, different to the capital requirements. So that depends on the on the P&L you report, and we know, for example, that uh, you're not allowed to include own funding in deductions in, in your CET1. So in, in terms of how you calculate capital regulators will certainly be very interested. And then the other area where this will definitely uh, come on the regulatory radar is in terms of CCAR calculations, for example, where, again, any valuation adjustments that you make will be will be scrutinized. However, it's very important to distinguish between capital charges, such as KVA, right? and capital requirements. So capital requirements are completely separate, right? So they're the the input, if you will. So the regulators determine how much capital a firm should hold, 
that's completely unaffected by any of these discussions. Like KVA just looks at, given what the regulators have required, what are any costs to shareholders associated with, with that requirement? So in summary, really, I mean, KVA application, KVA charging, KVA accounting, very early days. I don't think there's any general agreed agreement across financial firms. I think there's very different approaches taken at the moment. Well, um, that's very interesting. Uh, Matthias, thanks very much for explaining and, uh, this to us and uh, talking us through uh, your your paper. Uh, very interesting. And uh, um, yeah, thanks very much for joining us today. Thank you. Very much a pleasure. And uh, thanks everybody for listening. Bye-bye.